In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Good morning. And this gospel passage that Father Trent just read is, at least to me, I, I just find it very strange. Uh, I think it's confusing. Uh, I don't, there doesn't seem on the surface to be a lot of good news. And why do they get so mad? It's a continuation of the passage we had last week. Uh, Jesus is in the synagogue where he grew up. Uh, he is in his hometown of Nazareth. These were family friends. These were the ones who uh, knew him as a boy, watched him grow up, maybe sat around a breakfast table that Joseph had made for them. If you were with us last week, you heard Jesus read a passage from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, meaning I am the one that Isaiah was writing about. And everyone is so happy. They are amazed at His gracious words. But then Jesus tells them another couple of Bible stories and the synagogue crowd goes from marveling to murderous in a flash. They want to throw their new hometown hero off a cliff. You would think that Jesus has just posted his political opinions on Facebook. (laughs) I, I actually tell that joke as, as, because I think that this passage speaks into our cultural moment in that regard. It's not new news, is it, to say that our culture is politically and ideologically divided, and not politely so. Discourse, dialogue, and respectful civility are rare Vitriolic, win-at-all-costs, shouting matches are the norm. And people behave a little like we see in the synagogue audience from today's passage. Immediate and often uninformed fury. And if you don't believe me, then just go to Facebook or Instagram and post a decided opinion, one way or the other, about a hot-button topic like abortion or the president, or gay marriage. Then get some popcorn and a thick skin and sit back and watch what happens. Because it's likely that they will not just address your opinions with fury and angry face emojis, but they will come after you as a person as well. They will want to throw you off of a social media cliff. And many have observed that we are as a society, addicted to indignation. Addicted to indignation. Commenting on this, the novelist and the scientist David Brin writes, any truly honest person will admit that this state of indignation feels good. The pleasure 
of knowing with subjective certainty that you are right and your opponents are deeply, despicably wrong. Sanctimony or a sense of righteous outrage can feel so intense and so delicious that many people actively seek to return to it again and again. And the result is that on virtually every topic of importance and many, many topics of unimportance, uh, you have at least two violently opposed partisan camps. And in the middle, you have this massive group, this sort of mushy middle, that know that they, if they do get up to speed, that they're just going to get angry. And if they get involved, they're going to get creamed, so they just put their earbuds in and play Candy Crush. <laughs> and so with this cultural moment in mind, I want to ask three questions of our gospel text. Three questions that might inform how we as Christians live our faith in this moment. What did they hear? What did Jesus intend for them to hear? And what might this passage then say to us? What did they hear? What did Jesus intend for them to hear? And what might this passage say to us? So first... What did these people hear that moved them so quickly from admiration to indignation? I mean, Jesus could have just left well enough alone, right? I mean, he rolled up the scroll of Isaiah, said, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and everyone is amazed. And Jesus could have just taken a bow and started signing autographs, and everyone would have had a great day. But Jesus perceives their heart. He knows that they're actually not really amazed with Jesus. They just rather seem to be looking for special privileges from Him since they're from His town. They want to be on the inside track. Physician, cure yourself. I think our translation said doctor, cure yourself. was a common proverb of that day that meant that one should not hold from one, withhold from oneself or one's family, what he or she was providing for someone else. So just to give you an illustration, for instance, if Bill Gates was giving all of his money away to the poor, but his own children were going hungry as a result, someone could say to him, physician, heal yourself. Meaning, don't withhold from your kin what you're giving to other people. So Jesus knows that they've heard about the miracles that he has performed, that what they really want now is to see the magic show, right? Don't withhold from us. We're your kith and kin. Uh, the mir- don't withhold from us the miracles that you performed at Capernaum because we're from the same town. We want to be your insiders. <laughs> and so Jesus then recalls these two Old Testament stories where rightful outsiders received miraculous grace when plenty of obvious insiders did not. He says, There were plenty of hungry widows in Israel, but God sent Elijah the prophet to a poor Gentile woman in Zarephath, which is northwest of Israel, to feed her. There were plenty of lepers in Israel in need of healing, but God sent Elisha the prophet, the rich Syrian general Naaman, to heal him. 
Now, these were stories that they would have been familiar with. They were not arguing with the stories, but rather what they seemed to have heard was a defiant refusal from Jesus. And probably not just a refusal to give them the inside track, but denying them God's grace altogether. They heard Jesus using their own scripture against them. They heard heresy. That God was not for His chosen people, but that God was for the outsider alone. They jumped to a conclusion. And they regarded their own assessment of Jesus' words with such blind trust and confidence that they were ready quickly to kill Jesus in order to defend what they believed to be true. I have a vivid memory from my childhood. I walked, I was probably five years old, and I walked into the kitchen, and my mom was on the telephone, the long spaghetti cord up on the wall unit. And she said, into the phone, she said something like, uh, he's mentally handicapped, and I don't think he's going to make it in his class. And I burst into tears and ran to my room, sure that I was mentally handicapped. Because who else could she be talking about other than me? My mom was a preschool teacher. And it took her a long time to convince me, uh, through many angry and heartbroken protests, that she was talking to her school administrator about a family that had applied to, to go to their school. But I made an assumption. And I jumped to a conclusion, and I got all worked up about it. Now, that's a childish example, but we do the same thing all the time, don't we? Just look at the comment section of any online news article. Or watch CNN and Fox News in the same sitting. See what happens in your own heart. And, you know, that's essentially what these hometown synagogue people do. And and I have to wonder... If these people were so sure that they did in fact have the favor of God, wouldn't that have been enough to keep them calm? I mean, wouldn't the favor of Almighty God have been a source of strength and maybe even compassion for this upstart local teacher? Wouldn't the assured blessing of God that they, that they were sure that they had, wouldn't that give them the space to just ask for some clarification? And if necessary, then maybe just a gentle correction? Perhaps their anger exposes the fact that they weren't as sure as they thought they were. In my experience, when I have an immediate angry reaction like this, I I find that it's usually exposing my own insecurity. That if deep down I'm not actually sure about something that I'm trusting in and holding dear, and someone questions that or threatens that, then i got to work real hard to keep that thing intact for my own sense of well-being. And I think that's why some people get so upset about religion and politics and football. Because <laughs> we want to win, right? We want to be on the winning side. We want to be right, but we're not actually sure underneath. And so we have to attack what threatens that to keep it 
intact. Now, maybe I've just gone down a rabbit trail of my own making. You can decide uh, for yourself if you think I'm right, and then when this comes out on the podcast, just leave a comment uh, right below uh, there. (laughs) But I think they jumped to conclusion, they got angry, and their anger exposed insecurity because they're not exactly sure if they have God's favor. So, is that what Jesus wanted? What did Jesus intend for them to hear? I actually find it unlikely that Jesus was picking a fight with them, especially given the fact that he has just said that he has come to proclaim good news to the poor and release to the captives. In fact, I think that these stories of outsiders who received the miracles uh, while the insiders did not, that in, at least in Jesus' mind, they have to be tied to the passage from Isaiah that Jesus read, which described his own ministry. I think that Jesus is saying that to these people, not only do you not have the inside track, but you must identify with, uh, with the poor. You must find yourself among the poor and the captives to whom he has come proclaiming good news and release. In other words, Jesus is pushing them towards humility. But what happens when Jesus is pushing them towards humility is that it provokes their ethnical arrogance and it stirs their spiritual insecurity. And it would be our own arrogance if we thought that was only their problem and not our own. But before you drive me off the bulkhead, let's just consider what Jesus' message might be to us if we did, in fact, identify ourselves among the poor to whom he is bringing good news. If we realize that he is speaking not only to the economically poor, I mean certainly to the economically poor, but not only to the economically poor, but to any who have ever found themselves to be poor in spirit, who have found themselves lacking before God's law, who have found themselves on the outside looking in or on the fringe in any way, who have found themselves feeling guilt or shame or spiritual confusion or doubt or looking good on the outside but hiding a mountain of insecurity on the inside. What then? I mean, just for argument's sake, if that were to be you, then Jesus is is saying that you are exactly the kind of person that he has come for. That even when you're not so sure that he is sure, that even when you feel insecure, that it does not change the fact that you are secure in him. That though you may feel guilt, that He has paid for that all. That you are always and utterly on the inside with Jesus, even though you have no claim to the inside track. That we are invited to approach the throne of grace with confidence. All week long, I have been captivated by the last line in the passage. It's kind of strange. They drove him up to the brow of the hill, but he just passed through their midst and went on his way. 
I do not know how that happened or what that looked like. But I think the theological application is that the way that they were feeling did not change or affect Jesus or his call on their life. Whatever their receptivity, whatever they were feeling in the moment, Jesus still came to bring good news to the poor, and God's grace is still given to the outsider. And when we finally realize that we are the poor outsider for whom Jesus came, then He'll be waiting for us. Because His offer is unchanged. The more thoroughly we embrace His call to humility, the more completely we receive the full assurance of His favor and His love. So quickly, what then does that mean for us? Well, it means lots of things. But I'm only going to address how it might affect our role within a divided society. If we have the treasured experience of being the redeemed poor and the freed captive. If we have the full assurance of God's saving love and His gracious favor. And if we have the steadfast promise of God's Holy Spirit that He is in us and will be with us always, then I don't think that we need to feel particularly threatened when, someone's, when someone says something that we don't like or agree with. Christians sometimes are the worst about this. But in fact, I think Christians of all people should be able to engage in disagreements with patience and respect and compassion. That we can stand firm without lashing out. We can be assertive without attacking. We can be compassionate rather than combative. And we are free to apologize and ask forgiveness when we act in a way that we wish we hadn't. Because it is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that gives us our hope and our peace. Not the momentary victory of our political party. And certainly not the agreement of everyone around us. It is our great privilege, through word and deed, to share the hope and the peace of Jesus Christ that we have received. And to stand in that divide. And share with people on all sides. The good news of Jesus Christ that He has given to us, His own redeemed poor. Because the world around us needs the good news of Jesus more than it needs anything else. Amen.